what defiles us. Last week we heard from Jesus himself that it's not our externals. It's not what is on the outside it's that makes us unclean. It's not the foods we eat. It's not what we do to or with our bodies. We saw that defilement, true defilement, comes from the inside out. It comes from the heart. And that's what leads to all those other things that would defile us. What makes us clean? What makes us whole? We like to flip the switch on this one too. We like to say that what makes us whole comes from the inside. What makes us dirty comes from the outside and what makes us whole and good comes from the inside and Jesus is here to say no, it's the exact opposite. That's the the lesson that he had for the Pharisees last week. He said you guys are depending on your traditions to make you right. And you fundamentally misunderstand what makes you wrong and what makes you right. In today's passage, we're going to have these realities illustrated for us. It's like Mark chops off right at the end of Jesus' lesson and shows us what happens when Jesus takes a break, when He goes on vacation. Notice too, again, we have this rhythm of anything, anytime anything bad happens or Jesus is uh, really confronting something and, and there's some pushback, He, he always has a tendency to, to pull away, to back away. And in backing away, you think, okay, things are going to let off. Things are going to calm down for him a bit. And that never happens. When he pushes in and he engages with people, and then he moves away from them, ministry always happens there. Even when he's tired. Even when he's worn out. He backs away and ministry comes to him. In this case, literally falling at his feet. So what we're going to do is we're going to review kind of Mark's look at this theme of insiders and outsiders. Who's in and who's out. Then we're going to see an illustration of the the reality that externals don't defile us. That is illustrated for us in, in an incredible way. And then we're going to see a second illustration of the fact that internals, our own power, can't fix us. First, Mark is building on this theme of insiders and outsiders. Who are they? Who should be in? Who should be in with Jesus? It should be the religious elite. It should be the guys who go to church every Sunday who wear the right clothes. Um, All all the, the external things that define the religious elite, they should be on the inside, but time and time and time again, in Mark, we're, we're shown that that's simply not true. A social and spiritual oddity, John the Baptist, becomes the one who would announce Jesus' ministry. In Mark chapter 1, the first to be gathered around Jesus weren't the religious elite. He goes after fishermen along the sea. In Mark chapter 2, we find a paralytic brought to Jesus on the inside in a jam-packed home full of disciples and the sick. And Jesus forgives the man's sins 
and it drives the religious elite crazy. Who's on the inside and who's on the outside? Later in that same chapter, Jesus calls a tax collector of all people to be his follower. The insiders are tax collectors and sinners gathered around Jesus, learning from him, eating with him. In 2.16, the Pharisees question, wondering, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus famously responds, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In chapter 3, this theme comes to a head when Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, and the Herodians with the Pharisees begin to plot how to kill him, and they're in a synagogue when this goes down. Who's on the inside and who's on the outside? A lame man gets it. The elite don't. The contrast continues in chapter 3 with Jesus' own family when they're left on the outside and He's inside again, a jam-packed house full of the sick, the needy, His disciples. This inside and outside theme, even His family is on the outside because they, they don't yet get it. Even accusing Jesus of being out of His mind. Even the insiders in chapter 4, the disciples who should get it, get caught in a storm. Jesus speaks to the storm and it's stilled and it says they're afraid. They fear Him. In chapter 5, a guy who is as far on the outs as it could possibly get, legion, a a demon-possessed guy in the Decapolis, a Gentile region, he gets it. When people all around Jesus at home, they're, they're just not getting it. Who's going to get it? A demon-possessed man has the switch flipped for him, and he gets it. Later on in chapter 6, we see two unlikely people getting it. A desperate father, Jairus, who is, by the way, a religious elite, a leader in the synagogue there. And you're finally like, ah, there it is, there's some hope. He gets it. He falls down, abandoning all his reputation at the feet of Jesus, begging for the life of his daughter. And Jesus will go and and raise her up. And then a woman with an issue of blood who is unclean comes to Jesus. If I could just touch the hem of his garment, who's going to get it? Chapter 6, we see those who should get it the most. They were around Jesus from the time he was a little boy, he's in Nazareth and his own hometown rejects him. And then in the very next scene, he goes across the sea and 5,000 revolutionary men, maybe with women and children, gather around him ready to make him king. Again in chapter 6, we see Jesus powerfully demonstrating who he is, but the disciples are again afraid. We see the crowds at the end of chapter 6 as that comes to a close. They, they come to Him simply wanting Him to heal them. If we could just touch the hem of His garment, we'll be in. It's the sick, it's the outcast, it's the, it's the people on the outs that are getting it time after time after time. And you wonder, you scratch your head about the religious elites and Jesus answered that in last week's text. Brady preached 
beautifully about these traditions that you're holding to and you're, in those traditions you're missing who Jesus is. Then right after that we have this text. Who gets Jesus? Do we know that we are outsiders? That's the question. Do we know that we're on the outskirts, we're on the edges, we're on the fringes? Do we realize that? Do we think we're insiders because of internals? Do we think we're, we're in with Jesus because of the clothing we may wear or the church that we attend or, or some other external factors about us? We're good citizens. We're law-abiding. We pay our taxes. Are we those who know a great deal about Jesus and about His Gospel? Are we those who might be prone to lose our wonder at who Christ is? And what He has come to do. Jesus is the very Son of God. Come to earth to save sinners. And sometimes we can so get that. We've heard that so much that it just just bounces right off. It hits us and boom, it's gone. And we can play this external game all day long. We can look the part. We can feel the part. And we have zero wonder in our soul for who Jesus Christ really is. That's why Mark wrote his gospel. Are we ashamed to be aligned with Christ publicly? Would we be ashamed to be known as a, as a Christian, to be identified, to be lined up with Jesus Christ in our lives? All those outsiders who... Jesus invites in who are really insiders are willing to lose everything and simply fall down at his feet and say you have what I need we'll see a powerful illustration of that in verses 24 through 30 Jesus illustrating externals don't defile us so in drops this narrative Jesus withdrawing after conflict to a Gentile region. This, this needs some explanation. Tyre and Sidon are coastal cities. Jesus is going to the beach. He's taking a little bit of, little bit of a break. So you have Syria north and then Phoenicia, which is a, a bit north of that. And both of them are coastal regions. But notably here for, for us, they're, they're Gentile regions. Most of the time, self-respecting Jewish men, especially religious leaders, don't seek out Gentile regions to go on vacation. It's typically not what they do. So Jesus is up to something by simply going there. And here we meet this woman, and there's a double introduction. Look at 24. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Then again in 25, now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast out the demon out of her daughter. 
Why the double introduction? What's he doing? He's pointing out how far on the outs she really is. She's got four strikes. Three and you're out and she's got four. A woman, like the woman who touched Jesus' garment, this just wasn't done. Look, culturally, this is, this is a 2,000 year old narrative. Okay? Culturally, we're, we're quite different. You've got to put yourself back here in their day. Women just didn't come up to strange men and throw themselves down at their feet. They just didn't do it. It's exactly what this woman does. Outside the social norms. Next, she had a child who was demon-possessed. That's not good. That's some dark stuff. That's bad for her. That's bad for her family. It's bad for her household. Third, we're told she's a Gentile. Not good. Not good, again, especially for a self-respecting Jewish male. She's on the outs. And lastly, she's Syrophoenician. She's from this region of Tyre and Sidon, north there. And that, that's specifically kind of a, a, a twist of the knife. That's the last thing that strikes her out because they have a sordid history with Israel. Tyre was the home of Jezebel, a, a wicked and pagan queen. Tyre fought against the Jews in the Maccabean revolt some couple hundred years before this event. They were bitter enemies. Josephus, the Jewish historian of the second century, said the inhabitants of Tyre are our bitterest enemy. Just to the north. Next door neighbor, and we can't stand them. Okay, so that sets the context a little bit for what we're going to hear. Externally, this woman has every cultural strike against her. And she comes to Jesus begging, begging to cast out this demon from her daughter. She's heard of Jesus. Matthew's account of this very narrative, she, she says, Have mercy on me, Lord, Son of David. She's done her homework. This is a desperate mother. Who's going to fix this? And she believes with all her heart this Jesus can do it. She's heard that He's the King, the Son of David. What do we expect Jesus to do here? Confronted with this, what do we expect of Him? He's just going to be nice. He's going to take her by the hand. He's going to hug her. Tell her it's okay. Immediately go with her. Meet the daughter. Hash things out with a demon. Everything's going to be fine. It's not what he does at all. He drops a proverb on her. This proverbial statement, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. What is Jesus doing here? What in the world? Throughout Scripture, dogs seem to epitomize wrongness, uncleanliness, they aren't revered like they are in our culture. Yesterday, we sat up at Rhino for a few minutes. 
Uh, a couple comes in, we're at the back, back there, and they bring two dogs, one huge dog and one little puppy. And while we're sitting there, people are literally coming up, walking past us, asking them if they can just pet their dogs. Like other complete strangers are drawn to, to come in and spend time with these dogs. And that's just the way it is culturally. Right? Culturally, we revere them. This is, this is not the case 2,000 years ago. Dogs are on the outs. Matthew 7, Jesus says, Don't give to the dogs what is holy. Paul equates mutilators of the flesh and evildoers with dogs. Is Jesus doing the exact opposite of what He just commanded about externals? He just said, look guys, it's not about externals. But here He's dropping this external bomb on this woman. He's, he's throwing a lo- He pulled the pin of a loaded grenade all about externals and He threw it right at the woman. Filling almost every stereotype that she could have. There's a few things that we need to to note before we accuse Jesus. One, Jesus uses a diminutive form. And this isn't going to get us all the way. This is just something that needs to be said up front. A diminutive form of dog. It's almost like he's saying doggy or household dog or a, a pet or even puppy. It's only used here and in Matthew 15, but that doesn't get us all the way there. Jesus is using irony to force the woman and all those around him, his disciples, to deal with the external things that she has going against her. He wants to show her and the disciples something astounding. Jerem Bars, professor at Covenant Seminary, author, just a beautiful Christian man, he says this, Jesus is certainly not calling Gentiles dogs as some of his Jewish counterparts did. So we must conclude that he's using irony. You know what they say? It's kind of a quote. You know what they say? You can't give children's bread to the dogs. We can speculate that Jesus repeats this popular saying with a smile or with a twinkle in his eye. He's picking on externals. He's saying, look at who you are. Know who you are. He's being purposefully difficult to draw the woman out. To give a powerful example to all of us about the nature of faith and externals. He's inviting her in to the stereotype of all that she is. I think we do this all the time. We we do this in some senses every day. We're provocative in order to draw out the truth. And that's what Jesus is doing with this woman. He's being provocative to draw out the truth. It's like trying to convince a child that a jackalope is real. You know what a jackalope is, right? It's like trying to convince a kid when they, when they ask you. It's a, it's a stuffed rabbit that's got antlers, right? And some of them look real. And kids are going to want to know, hey, I've never seen anything like that. Do rabbits grow antlers? And most adults will be like, yep, they sure do. Why? And that's just mean. That's just, you're just being a liar. The kid's going to grow up until he's 40 years old one day. He's going to be thinking of jackalope. He's going to be looking for it all around. Where's a, where's a rabbit with antlers? No, we do it to draw out the truth. We do this all the time. Popular advertising does this. 
in ways to, to sell us on their product. They, they pitch an irony, they pitch a hyperbole, and invite us in to that so that we could see ourselves in and with that product. AT&T, reach out and touch someone. Sitgo, there at every turn. Brilliant brunette shampoo. Adds amazing luster for infinite, infinite. Mirror-like shine. Citibank, city never sleeps. Here's a good one. Disneyland, what is it? The happiest place on earth. What a statement. All these things, here's one more I have to add it. Oscar Mayer, you know what it is? It just doesn't get any better than this. All these things are are intended to invite us in and to, to think about ourselves inside of this context and to think about who we actually could be in this context. Disneyland, the greatest place on earth. And at some point when you're sitting there scrolling through the vacations, you're thinking, you know what, they're right. It's the greatest place on earth. So where I would never normally spend $10,000 to take my family on vacation for a week, I would to take them to the greatest place on earth. You have, been, you have suddenly been invited in to a hyperbole. And you've been invited to see yourself and your family in light of that hyperbole, in light of that ironic thing. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Should I take bread from my table and throw it to the dogs? It's not right, he says to this woman. And by that statement, he's drawing her out. He's forcing her to reckon with all those external things that would be obstacles. And in the midst of that, she does something beautiful. She takes that proverbial statement, that loaded grenade, and she lobs it right back at Jesus. She does something astounding. She says, yes, Lord, yes, what you say is true. What you say your your assessment about my externals are right. I'm as far on the outs as I could possibly get, but even the dogs get to eat the crumbs from the master's table. Listen, that that is a powerful truth. She says, I fully see who I am. I have no bones about it. I'm I'm as far on the outs as I can be from you, Lord. And all I need from you is crumbs. Listen, do do we accept the Scripture's true assessment of our lives that we're hopeless, who we really are, Do we accept the reality that externals will never get it done, ever? As as much good as we could possibly mount up, it's never going to be enough to please a holy God. Do we acknowledge that all we need are the crumbs from the Master's table? Jesus tells her, "You, you have no externals whatsoever to depend on. And instead of becoming arrogant and prideful and just laying into Him or just storming away, she simply says, you're right. I'm broken at every turn. I've got nothing to offer you. I come to you with an open hand, simply 
wanting leftovers. And in that statement, she goes from being an outsider, a dog, to a child. She's treated like his child. Go your way. Your daughter's fine. It's the only miracle in Mark recorded where he he does it from a distance. The power he, he puts on display here is astounding. And then Mark is sure to follow it up with, and she went home and found her daughter was fine. This woman fully acknowledges the truth of who she is. She's drawn out. And in so doing, she's treated like a kid. Do we know the truth of who we are? Do we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that our biggest problem isn't really our externals? I don't think so. I think when confronted with our externals, we, we get angry. If confronted with some way that you're externally wrong or off or something bad that you've done, our tendency is to build walls and defend it. Hey, you're wrong about me. You're, you're wrong in your assessment about me. I'm actually a nice guy and we'll, we'll work real hard to convince each other how nice we are. All the while def- rejecting the fact that we are defiled people. When Jesus confronts the woman with all these external cultural ways that she should be on the outs, she, she doesn't defy any of that. She says, you're right. It's me. Jesus is also doing something else here, by the way. He, he's also pointing to this reality that he, he did come, the, the message was coming to the Jews first and also to the Greeks. We read this in Romans 1 and, and several other places across the New Testament. He's, he's talking about the order in which the gospel would go out. It would first go to Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. She's putting herself into all of that, saying, you're right, I'm on the outs. And what I need is from you. Crumbs from your table. So we know that Jesus is unimpressed by good manners. He's unimpressed by our solid work ethic. He is unimpressed by our self-sufficiency. He's unimpressed by where we're from what our pedigree is, who our family is, etc. That does not impress Him. We, today, in this room, are Gentiles. We're on the outs. Jesus comes to us, and He could just as easily say, why would I give my bread to you? Why do you deserve it? And we could look at him and say, you're right, we don't. We don't deserve it. But we have no other hope other than you, and that's exactly what he's doing with that woman. We've got no hope but in you. What does please God if it's not externals? I'm glad you asked. Mark has already told us what pleases God. Remember this statement? Jesus is baptized coming up out of the river. As He's coming up out of the river, heaven rips open 
a dove descends and the voice of the Father says, You are my beloved Son, in You I am well pleased. If Jesus is not well pleased with our best efforts, if He's not well pleased with all these other things that we would try to put up to please Him or to please other people, if He's not impressed by all that, what does impress Him? And it's this, it's His Son. The Father looks at Jesus and says, In you I am well pleased. So when we find ourselves well pleased before the Father, it is only when we find ourselves hidden in Christ. That is what is pleasing to the Father. Second application, how are we at ministry to the outsiders? Look, we live, live in a racially divided culture. We live in a racially divided city. Time after time we see Jesus going out of His way to go into Gentile regions to people who are different from Him culturally, ethnically. Taking them truth. How, how are we with that? Do we go out of our way to make relationships with people who aren't like us? It's a hard question, but I think it's one that we have to reckon with from this text. People who aren't like us socially, culturally, ethnically. Do we take up the burdens of others? That is what is Christ-like. How can Jesus lob a grenade like dog at her to elicit faith? Knowing full well that He came into the world to, to take the curse of a dog. To be dragged outside the city. And to be crucified on a trash heap. That's how He could engage with this woman in this way. We, listen, we have something powerful for ourselves and powerful to offer our city. Next application is this, faith and desperation. There are desperate people here this morning. What does a desperate faith look like? What does desperation look like before Christ? Someone hurting, struggling with life. Martin Luther, the German reformer, loves this text. He wrote pages and pages and pages and pages on just this text. He says this, Christ here represents how our heart feels in temptation. When we are tempted, this is what our heart feels like. It thinks there is nothing but no. Our hearts believe there is nothing but no. That's easily what the woman could have heard is Jesus, can you help me? No. But she didn't hear that. Continuing the quote, Therefore, it must turn from this feeling and lay hold of and retain the deep spiritual yes under and above the no with firm faith in God's Word as this poor woman does. And say God is right in His judgment which He visits on us. Then we have triumphed and caught Christ in His own words. Look, you take the stinger out when someone comes at you and says, here's my accusation against you when you say, you're right. You're right. And I've got no hope but in Christ. Christ. 
That's what desperation looks like. Desperation looks like going to Christ saying, I've got no hope except in you. Lastly, on this point, Jesus is not tame. You read C.S. Lewis. You talk about the lion. You know what I'm talking about? Lion, witch, in the wardrobe. All that stuff. You have this, this fierce lion, Aslan. He's, he's a main character in the stories. And a question comes up of his safety. Is, it, is he safe? And the answer is, of course he's not safe. He's a lion. He's not safe. He's not tame. But he's good. Jesus here is not, he's not safe. He's going he's gonna to pull the pin and lob grenades. But He's good. He's drawing out faith. He's inviting us in to an irony to see who we really are. You can't tame Jesus. I think we encounter things like this all the time in the Scriptures. Things that are hard. Things that are hard to understand. They make us really uncomfortable. Have you ever thought that that might be Intentional. That it's supposed to make us a little on edge and uncomfortable? I think so. Next we go to this other illustration. So that one, externals can't get it done. And you need to embrace that reality. And the second, internals can't fix us. Having illustrated that these externals don't get it done, he, he, Jesus goes up to another Gentile area. He goes from the coast, Tyre and Sidon. He didn't really get a relaxing beach vacation. Uh, he was being swarmed by people. And then he goes from there to the Decapolis, to the ten cities, more east of the Sea of Galilee. So he's back in that region where he met Legion. So he's back over there and they bring to him a deaf man who also has a speech impediment. Jesus, what can you do with this guy? Please heal him. Verses 33 and 34, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, this is weird. He puts his fingers into the, to the guy's ears. Yeah. After spitting, he touched his tongue, looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be open. That's an Aramaic word. Probably the guy's language, and Mark is wanting to say, this is exactly what Jesus... It's a great touch of detail. This is exactly what Jesus said, and it's probably the first word this dude ever heard. Ephatha from the mouth of Christ. Be opened and his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. Why is Jesus doing this? Why the show? Think about this guy. This is probably the first time a deaf mute man has ever been invited to come along in private to have a conversation. Ever. Where else do, do you pull a deaf person aside from a crowd to have a conversation with them? No, Jesus is, is showing love and respect for this man's broken condition. Takes him aside privately, inviting him into an intimate one-on-one conversation. Again, probably didn't happen very often, if ever. He then puts his fingers in his ears, weird, spits, and touches his tongue, what is Jesus doing? Sign language. Sign language. 
you have a problem. You can't hear. I know that. You have a problem. He spits, drawing his attention to his mouth, and he touches his tongue. The, the guy probably opens his mouth, and he touches his tongue. Sign language, I know that you have a problem. Then, so the guy doesn't mistake any of this, he, he, he looks to heaven. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't just do it without making this show. He wants the guy to see where his help comes from. He doesn't want there to be any mistake that his need, what will heal him, isn't some magic trick. But God in heaven is his only hope. He looks to heaven and then it says something interesting. He sighs when he looks up. It's a fascinating statement. He sighs. Calvin said when he looked up to heaven and sighed, it was an expression of strong feeling. This enables us to perceive the vehemence of his love towards men for whose miseries he feels so much compassion. Jesus knows our miseries and he looks up to heaven and sighs on our behalf. <sighs> this wretched, cursed world. It's a sigh of his soul and he's come to roll it back. Immediately the man when Jesus says, be opened, his ears were open and he could speak perfectly. Power. And Jesus tells him, don't, don't tell anybody, but he, he does, he can't help it. If you just learn to speak, you're going to go, look, this guy, he became a preacher after this. His tongue was loosed. What else is he going to talk about? I couldn't hear and now I can. I couldn't speak and... Now I'm talking all the time. I think Mark in this text has a a conscious connection to Isaiah 35. There's a word he uses for mute that's only ever used in Isaiah 35. And Isaiah 35 says, Behold, your God will come with vengeance, the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Isaiah 35 says something very interesting about salvation. And then it says... All these things will happen. We'll read that in just a minute. But it it causes this intersection of salvation and vehemence. Salvation with vengeance. Salvation with the recompense of God. All these things come together in the person and work of Christ. Christ has come to heal. He has come to loose ears and tongues heal from diseases, but it all points to the great salvation that He comes to give in Himself. And that salvation will be provided through vengeance, but that vengeance will not fall on this woman. In fact, in Matthew, Jesus says to her, woman, great is your faith. The vengeance is not going to fall on this man. The vengeance is not going to fall on me and you, those who are in Christ. The vengeance is going to fall on Him. He's going to take it. Jesus will take the vengeance of God to save His people. As we come to the table today, we will see vengeance and recompense.
coming together to save the people of God. Matthew 35 goes on, after it says, and He will save you, it goes on, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. That's what it looks like when salvation comes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we resonate deeply with these illustrations. We come together today as a people who want our externals to be enough. They simply aren't. We come together this morning also thinking that we have inside of ourselves what we need to fix us, what we need to make us better, and we simply don't. Father, point us today by Your Word and sacrament to what we truly need, and that is the person and work of Jesus Christ and Him alone. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.